You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And Neil, today I want to talk about a little IRL in the real world. I know that you've been thinking about the physical world and causality. Tell me about what's been in your head lately. Actually, I spent a week where uh, I was getting together a lot with Bernard, so maybe this is affecting my thinking Bernard Shawcott. Uh, who's uh, big on causality, but he's absolutely right. And what was interesting about it is we have slightly, um, we, we care passionately about the same thing, but we're coming at it from different angles, which is great. And that's, when I see that in the field, I think that that diversity of approach is critical because neither of us knows what the dominant approach will be. It's almost like the mating of the physical world with our machine learning models and the type of questions people often want to answer. And and those are in the form of um, counterfactuals in terms of what if I were to do this. As we saw uh, last episode uh, around the fairness tool, um, the what if tool from um, Google AI. Now those type of questions can't be answered from a purely descriptive approach. This is the sort of classical inability to separate correlation and causality that um, we can infer causality but the the points from classical statistics are that in order to do so we have to have interventionist studies and randomization so that's the sort of classical approach to inferring causality and the challenge with that is that to deploy such randomized studies is sometimes either very expensive or impossible so if we're trying to sort of consider, say, a personalized medicine treatment on an individual, we can't randomize them. I mean, we can we can do things like we can say, oh, we'll, we'll try interventions that occur across different times, but there's confounders over what else is going on in their lives. So that's one that's sort of absolutely impossible to deal with. And I think a really important question is when we're doing automated decision making is how and and i mean i think i'm very curious about how humans do this sort of thing and that's why i love the fact that we have sort of cognitive science integrating with us as well but but from a pragmatic issue if i know various things about the real world how do i make decisions given that i'm sometimes moving into regimes where i know i have no data so i'm changing something about my physical system sort of trying to think of good examples. Certainly one example that I have worked on in the past is um, advice on sort of Formula One strategy, which is very much driven by simulation. So engineers encode their understanding of the race into a simulation, and then they sort of simulate different strategies, like if I'm going to stop my car to change tires on lap 15 and lap 30, what's my expected number of points and 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 those simulations have assumptions about how other cars will behave and and how easy it is to overtake and various things in in them if if as the situation evolves once i've made these changes this race has never been run before but i kind of have a sense about how i think these things will evolve so i want to we include that and i i i express that in my simulation that's quite a a difficult task and it involves a sort of expert introducing their knowledge to the system. Sometimes the simulation can be sort of much more like um, climate modeling, physical differential equations, which is a a deep understanding. But if we don't include that type of understanding in our machine learning models, we're in the same position of never being able to separate correlation from causality, 
we can't answer the question, what if I change this import to a certain regime where I've never seen before because my model hasn't seen data in that region? Emulation is is one approach that I'm very interested in for trying to deal that. So sustaining the simulation and modeling the simulation machine learning models, but returning to the simulation when you're moving into regimes you haven't seen before. That's That's one of the reasons I'm very keen on surrogate modeling or emulation, as it's called, this area of uncertainty quantification, because what it says in that domain is if I'm uncertain, I um, flip back to the more physical realization of the system. So I train my machine learning model on data from that physical realization. But when I'm uncertain, I flip back. There's also, I think, some very elegant descriptions from the sort of probabilistic numerics field that are very closely related around about how much compute do I want to spend on this action? How much do I need this answer to what accuracy? As you start to get in a real physical world, those are the sort of practical questions that you want to address. And also in the cognitive science literature, Thomas Griffith, who we were talking about the other week, is interested in that type of thing. What's the People talk about rational behavior, but if it's rational under a computational constraint that you need to give the answer quickly. All these are very practical issues that emerge when you have some kind of physical understanding that's slow to compute. And the other area, of course, is um, what I would think of the statistical study as causality, where you're trying to infer something about these systems by looking at data and, and applying particular interventions. And, you know, I think, have we mentioned the book of why yet? I haven't read it. I've bought it. But Judea Pearl has a sort of more, who's a, who's a sort of leader in this field, uh, has written a, I guess, more populist a more what I understand is a more lay approach to sort of understanding causality and his his approach to causality. I don't know if it's just his approach. Certainly, he has an approach called the Do Calculus. There's work of Bernard Chilcott around what a causal system would look like in terms of the noise on the outputs, and, and I'm sure others. These are really really interesting areas that I think we need to get to the heart of if we're going to get anything close to the promise of of AI as automated decision-making that goes beyond what we're talking about uh, the other week in terms of machine learning systems design, that I'm just going to try and decompose this into a set of subtasks that I, I have, that I'm interested in. Because what this is really saying is, well, we're now using the human to decompose this complex decision-making into something that they reflect, oh, that, that I, I do lane tracking, I do pedestrian detection, whether that's true or not. But if we want real systems, they need to do that kind of decomposition, that sort of analysis themselves, which means that they have to have the ability to um, characterize that. So the approach that I spoke about in terms of let's have a simulation, let's replace it with an emulation, is allowing humans to still introduce knowledge through the simulation. But then some of these causal studies, uh, these causal ideas are really, in the long term, I hope, going to address the question of, of what should that mechanistic model look like? Because that's one of the coolest things about human thinking is that you can get a formula one race engineer to decompose a race into these things that they see as important right but how is it that they know that those are the important things or how do we even validate how they've abstracted the race i don't know that's a really really tough problem we can sort of validate against real world data but but if we have a specific change that someone's proposing, can we say it's the right change or not? These are super difficult problems that I think we're some way from resolving, even despite all the exciting advances we have. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll have a link to the book of why and also to some of Bernhard Scholkoff's papers on this topic on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. 
So this week's question on Talking Machine is about an article about a paper, which might be a little hard to unpack, but let's let's try to work through it, Neil. So our, our listener writes, I recently read an article from Quantum Magazine about a paper from Richard Zemmel and a couple of other researchers. The article was about a computer vision paper that had the system had been trained on images of living rooms, but then seemed to be very confused when an image of an elephant was introduced. The writer of this article seemed very surprised by this. But me, having some small background in machine learning, feels like this would be the outcome that you would expect. How do we bridge that gap in the public conversation around these ideas? And also, should I be surprised that a model trained on a living room can't recognize an elephant? So, Neil, should we should we be surprised by the elephant in the room? I mean, also, to me, that seems like like the thing that you would expect. If you've trained a model on chairs and TVs and video game systems, then it's going to be, it's not going to know what an elephant is. Maybe an elephant is a huge couch or something like that. It's interesting. I mean, I'm... I wonder if the question is more about what the public perception of machine learning is versus the actual capabilities. So my example of this is a sort of when we were did Data Science Africa in Nyeri this year, um, we had a team from ARM, Damon Chivin and Jan Longbone out there with Shiromania teaching the students how to deploy sort of photo traps in the conservancy of the university where there's sort of various animals. And a photo trap is when you take a camera that's sort of automated and it and the camera knows when there's going to when there are animals in the area or it senses movement, it turns on, it takes a bunch of photos and then it turns off when there's nothing there anymore. Is that right? That's right. That's exactly right. So so the aim of the workshop which I think is a super important aim was end to end learning. What I mean like that is not necessarily or the end-to-end data science process, I should say. No, not just putting a large neural network and having to do everything, which is an interesting approach people are doing in end-to-end, but going from the field to answering the question, say, at the Ministry of Agriculture or the Ministry of the Environment, and back into the field. So so being able to certainly, I, I find that fascinating because it sort of causes you to think about the entire data science pipeline. In, in that environment, in the African environment, it's very often the case that there isn't existing infrastructure for doing part or more of that job. So, you know, often the researcher, the data scientist um, needs to be equipped to do the whole thing. And anyway, the point of that story was that the um, I think that they used um, Damon got ImageNet running on. Um, I can't remember the processor that they were using. And uh, it just thought everything was a llama. <laughs> Oh, no. Like everything? I think it thought everything was a llama. I may be confused because there's also actually, oddly, there is a llama in the conservancy. But I think, yeah, it's kind of whatever it thought. It had this same problem because it's not a general machine learning system. It's just trained on what it's trained on. And I don't know the, the, the details of the paper, but if the gist of the article, as it seems to be, is isn't it surprising that um doesn't recognize the elephant? I think there's... um. There's some contextual stuff going on as well. So I think one of the senses is that the elephant changed the nature of the objects around it. And without knowing the details of the algorithm, it kind of makes sense that there's... So we talked about decomposition the other week into... Well, I mean, it relates to a few of the things we've spoken about. But if if we're providing data sets where elephants are not seen typically in houses alongside chairs... You know, humans are very good at using context to understand 
something specific. And what I think that this is indicating is that the neural network is is picking up on context, not as cleanly as it might do, which is not really surprising. I think I would agree. Well, to be careful, because I haven't looked at the nuances of the paper, that, that headline conclusion isn't, isn't that surprising to a machine learning researcher, but it, it's probably very surprising to many members of the public. I thought you made a nice point about the what-if tool uh, the other week, about it being a great tool for members of the public to understand some of the issues around data. And maybe this article is is really just reminding us of that, that things that are perhaps maybe less surprising to researchers, very surprising to the general public because the general public has this perception that we're somehow recreating human intelligence, which is not what we're doing. I mean, we're emulating it in some way, but it's kind of distinct in various ways. They have a few quotes in the article from the author team, and and one of them seems to be just sort of like very much along these lines. Amir Rosenfeld, who's uh, at York University and is one of the authors of the paper, says, literally, there are all sorts of weird things happening that show how brittle current object detection systems are. I mean, that seems like, that seems like the headline. Like, yeah, although, I, I, and I think he's right, but I, I worry that these type of messages turn into other headlines I've seen that sort of says, machine learning is magical and no one understands. The frightening thing about our machine learning algorithms is no one understands why these things work, which is also not true. It's like, we kind of understand why it's difficult to understand. These are high dimensional spaces. I have my pinball analogy uh, that I sometimes use to try and communicate that that in these models, it's like a pinball machine in massively high dimensions. And there's just pins in places in the machines where the ball's never gone before. And when it goes there, unpredictable things happen. And, you know, that's exactly what happened to AlphaGo. Lisa Doll played it into that spot. And when that happens, well, AlphaGo's kind of all out of luck. That's something I think we're very aware of and people would like to address. And certainly I think about ways of addressing that. People propose Bayesian neural networks as one way of addressing that. So I think it's true. So so, so it's difficult, isn't it? Um, this is the challenge is getting nuanced. So I wouldn't disagree with what Amir is saying, but just caution against the sort of other, like as soon as the word, you know, there's weird things happening in neural networks, like as if the fabric of mathematics has broken down, is, 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 is the worry that I have that's interpreted. But he's... I, I can also agree with the sort of sense of it, but getting nuanced views across to the general public is very, very hard, and also doesn't the nuanced view doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily the best view for a, an article writer to pick up if if they're interested in in getting attention on their article, which most uh, journalists are. So there'll be a pre-selection of a particular type of article, which is which is inevitable. We we can't avoid it. Yeah. So. I think, you know, it's it's probably a really interesting article. I, I haven't read the details of the article that Amir, John and Rich wrote. They, they're, they're great people, so I'd have no reason to think it's not. But but it's almost inevitable if there's any, if you if you talk about the elephant in the room, someone's going to want to write an article. I, I suspect they may have known that themselves. So so there may be some guilt with the researcher if there is a misleading, but, they, you, know, they, they, you know, who's above that to a certain extent? We have to watch that type of stuff. No, absolutely. And this is also an interesting trend, right? As you try to make 
pure research, more accessible. You use words that are perhaps more exciting in your title. You maybe make the title of the paper shorter. You make it sort of more open for lay entry into the conversation, which which can be great and is sometimes a is a new territory. So it's like sometimes very difficult to navigate deftly. But the thing that makes me really excited about this is that this is a popular article in the popular press written about an academic paper. And he actually talks to the researchers and they're quoted. And there's a nice little infographic about deep learning and explaining what a layer is. This is the first step into actually having a conversation. Yeah, totally. No, that's nice. I like that. I like that. But, but just by the same token, I think one could also take Amir's quote and reapply it to the process of getting your your, there's all sorts of weird things that happen in the journalistic pipeline that show how brittle our understanding of academia is. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. You could apply that to literally any part of this whole flow, right? Yeah, and and there's some sort of some sort of hope in the end that despite all these weird things, that there's some sort of average answer that will reflect what actually goes goes on. And and I think yeah, you're right. I think this is a nice article. Uh, um, is it, is it surprising that that's the surprising thing? Maybe it's not even surprising at some meta level, but also it's it's a reminder that uh, our understanding as experts differs from the understanding of the general public. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you've got a question for Talking Machines or you've got an article that you were surprised by or an article that you weren't surprised by, email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet at us at TLKNGMCHNS. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Kush Varshney of IBM Research. And when we got a chance to sit down and talk with him at ICML in 2018, I asked him the first question we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? Yeah, it's a, it's a long story. I've been at IBM now about eight years. I guess in college, I was a major at, in electrical and computer engineering and just felt that uh, it was, I mean, a good field to be in. Um, it was kind of doing new things, trying to, I mean, use technology for, for good stuff. And then um, within that, I was more attracted to the more mathematical side of things, what, um, kind of signal processing, uh, communications, these sort of things. And when I was applying for grad school after that, I ended up at MIT and I was working with Professor Alan Wilski. And uh, in, uh, in his group, we were, I mean, doing a lot of different things. So I initially started doing some radar uh, image formation sort of work, doing some sparsity things before uh, compressed sensing was even a, a term, and um, <laughs> kind of that led to, I mean, some some more work uh, in this general direction. And then for my PhD thesis, uh, I was doing some kind of taking a new approach for classification algorithms with a geometric regularization term that was inspired by some techniques from image processing. And yeah, all of that was kind of, I mean, work that was, I guess, leading me more towards machine learning. And then as I was looking for jobs, IBM Research was one that I had applied to. And it was, it felt like a great fit for me. This was kind of before the whole like uh, tech bubble or AI bubble or whatever you want to call it. So um, IBM Research was, I mean, I joined the math department, which had a long history of over 50 years uh, doing a lot of fundamental work in uh, optimization theory and other stuff. And I, I joined a group led by Sashka Moisilovich, and it was doing, I mean, the group was doing a lot of work on what was called analytics at that time, uh, business analytics and so forth, and doing a mix of kind of more fundamental machine learning, learning research as well as 
applying things to fields which at that point um, you wouldn't think were actually being looked at through the lens of data and uh, machine learning and so forth. So we started doing work on um, human capital management and workforce analytics. We were doing uh, work on healthcare sort of problems as well. Yeah, I mean, it was a, a great fit for me to, to get going. And uh, just being a researcher in an industrial research lab has been a great experience so far. That's fantastic. Awesome. And you're you're part of the data analytics research group right now, right? Yeah. So um, actually, since last September, uh, we've created within IBM Research this uh, overall IBM Research AI organization. And uh, within that, there's an AI science part, which includes machine learning and machine reasoning and, and so forth. So I am in um, the, the learning part of it. And yeah, our mission right now is to do as much uh, kind of fundamental research as we can to push the boundaries of the technical approaches that are relevant for IBM's uh, customers and uh, more broadly in, in the scholarly sense as well. Nice. Excellent. And you're, you're also part of the group at IBM that's focused on science for social good. Tell me about that. That's one of the things that, that I really look forward to, to doing when I wake up. So so Sashka, who I mentioned before, and I, a few years ago, we launched this new initiative, which we call the Science for Social Good Initiative. Done about 20 or 25 projects so far in which we collaborate with uh, different nonprofit or uh, social entrepreneurship sort of organizations. So that could be people looking at poverty or hunger or mm-hmm. equality of various sorts. And uh, we try to identify some problem with them in common where uh, we can bring some value and they have uh, the solid subject matter expertise. And we try to do a, uh, a short project. We don't, I mean, imagine that we can really solve poverty in a, a summer internship sort of project or anything. <laughs> we have done, I mean, some good illustrative projects with, with various organizations that actually show that some of the techniques that we bring can be valuable in pushing the social sector forward. That's fantastic. Tell me about one of them that really excited you or had a really unexpected or interesting outcome. Yeah, one of the projects we've been doing or we started, I guess, a couple of years ago was in partnership with the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies, which, so the project was around zoonotic diseases. These are diseases that transfer from animals into humans. Mm. Many diseases are of that type, and they're a growing concern because, uh, Humans are now encroaching onto the wild much more than they had been before. and Are we talking about domesticated animals or food animals? Yeah, so wild animals like primates, uh, so monkeys in the wild and so forth. So Zika virus is an example of uh, one that uh, was in the news a few years ago because it had transferred um, into the Americas, when, whereas it had only been in Africa for the previous 50 years. Mm-hmm. It was causing microcephaly, which is uh, small heads and other developmental issues in newborns for uh, infected pregnant mothers. Mm-hmm. And so what we were trying to do in the project at that time was to identify or predict the reservoir species for the virus. And a reservoir species is an animal that gets infected but doesn't have symptoms and doesn't die. So they're not the vector, actually. So a vector would be a mosquito. Um, So a mosquito would go bite the reservoir species, get the infection, and then bite a human, and then the human would get it. And um, in the wild, these reservoir species keep the virus alive Mm. um, so that it, uh, I mean, just persists and so forth. And in Africa, there were a couple of known reservoirs, but in the Americas, it was not known what those would be. 
And the features that our collaborators at the Care Institute had identified um, were a lot of behavioral and physiological characteristics of primate species that help us predict whether a particular species can be a reservoir or not. So we built a model based on those features predicted for the Americas, and we were able to identify among the about 200 or so species of primates in the Americas, which ones are most likely to be reservoirs. In our top six or so, um, a couple of them were later shown by field ecologists to actually be reservoirs. That's incredible. That's incredible. It could just have such an impact on on just huge vulnerable populations. So did you see it applied in any way, or was it really as a secondary indicator for the field researchers? Yeah, um, so we did, I mean, share a lot of these results with various folks who are interested, like there's a White House Task Force on Zika and, and so forth. It really is a methodology to um, help identify where you can uh, better kind of control the spread of the disease and so forth. So it helps I mean, various policymakers in, in various respects. Nice. You also work with a, an organization called Datakind. Tell me about them. So that's actually the genesis of why I personally, I mean, wanted to start the program at IBM as well. So I guess in 2013 or so, uh, I got involved with Datakind. It's an organization that connects data scientists with NGOs uh, for working projects uh, in their spare time on nights and weekends and so forth. So I did a couple of longer term projects um, in the 2013 to 2015 timeframe. One of them was with an NGO named Give Directly, and it was to estimate poverty in Western Kenya using satellite imagery. So it turns out that uh, the type of roof a person or a household lives under is a very strong indicator of how poor they are. So thatched wow. roofs are, and metal roofs are the two types of roofs that exist in that part of the world. And people who live under thatched roofs are a bit poorer than the ones who live under metal roofs. Mm -hmm. And anyone who really can afford it will get a metal roof for mm -hmm. various reasons. So one of them is that uh, you can collect rainwater off a metal roof. You don't have to walk a few kilometers to a well. Another is that the thatched roofs um, breed mosquitoes, which spread malaria, which uh, connects back to the other project as well. And they also break down every few months, so you have to keep replacing them. So anyone who has, who can, will get a metal roof. Mm -hmm. And what Give Directly does is they offer unconditional cash transfers to households. So they need to know which are the poorest households in order to have the greatest impact. Exactly. So in satellite imagery, you can actually tell the difference fairly straightforwardly. And uh, so we built uh, a pipeline of uh, machine learning and uh, crowdsourcing sort of tools and image processing together to um, be able to, to make those predictions at a village level. That's amazing. I feel like it would like make efficiency for the project just like tenfold more effective immediately. Yeah, so um, you all, instead of having to send humans out for doing like three or four week surveys and censuses yeah. and so forth, you basically have the results. Of, right, you can just put the people on the ground making the offer. You don't have to do any of the... Yeah. The field research. Exactly. And then wow. the second project I did with, with Datakind was with a group called Simpa Networks. And they also work with rural folks who are kind of less well-off, but in India rather than Africa. What they do is uh, pay-as-you-go solar power. Yeah. Um, so this the concept is that a person who can, I mean, afford candles and kerosene and so forth for their illum nighttime illumination often doesn't have enough capital at any one time to afford a solar panel. Yeah. But if you can take a small down payment from them and let them repay over a longer time period, let's say three years or so, they they would be able to afford a solar panel. Nice. So what Simpa does is they, I mean, create the financing schemes as well as the full support system to let people um, get these things. Um, 
and their uh, physical hardware is designed such that if you haven't paid for a while, then they can shut off the uh, connection between the panel and the load. So wow. from a remote sort of way. And so it, I mean, incentivizes people to keep repaying until they, they fully repay it. And then they have the energy free to use for, for the rest of the, the lifetime of the, uh, the solar power. So the project we were doing was to predict based on application form data, which applicants would be the most likely to fully repay for their systems versus which ones would not. So that was kind of the the idea for, for our project. That's crazy. Yeah. And so and so Datakind is, is sort of a matchmaking service? They help you find these projects? Uh, so what they do is they actually create the team of volunteers to work with the partner organization. They find the, the partners and organizations and uh, do the matchmaking, but also support the project as it goes along. We learned quite a bit, I mean, from that experience, from my experience, with Datakind and setting up our own IBM social good pro, uh, program as well. So really the hardest part of doing all of these projects is finding the right projects, finding the right partner organizations, because there has to be, I mean, this interesting ma- match. Uh, so there's lots of people in the world doing really impactful work, but for us to be valuable, they also need to have, I mean, the question has to be one that really brings our value, which is the, the technical expertise. So there has to be data and there has to be the availability of a, a problem specification, which really brings forth, uh, I mean, the technical skills that we that we have. And then Really, the most important criterion beyond all of that is that there really should be someone uh, in the partner organization who's championing this and who has the time to devote to help formulate the problem, provide feedback as it's going along, and have the capability to take on what we've done to, yeah. to give it life forward. Yeah, yeah. So. One of the fundamental problems or or hurdles in working with a, a collaborator already is just trying to have that language transfer and yeah. understand what they're asking, because I feel like so often we have great examples of people who are amazing area experts and bring a problem and they say, can you just put some machine learning on this? Can you just machine learning this for us? I imagine that that must be even more difficult when you're working with nonprofit organizations, which are focused really on impact on the ground and maybe don't have a lot of time to think about how their research is conducted or how their questions get asked. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, So machine learning isn't any like sort of like sprinkles that you can just put on to (laughs) to your ice cream or whatever. It's it does involve a lot of conversation back and forth, and we bring, I mean, a lot of imagination on what could be done. Um, and so really it is a collaboration um, in both the problem understanding and problem formulation parts, as well as actually completing the, the work. And one good thing about being at IBM is that we actually have that mode of working with paying clients and so forth. Mm-hmm. So one of our roles at IBM Research is to work with clients to define problems and, and uh, kind of figure out how machine learning fits in. So we can transfer those skills into um, working with the, the nonprofit uh, organizations as well. Yeah, having that problem-solving mindset that comes from industry can be really crucial when you're trying to like actually nail something to the wall. Mm-hmm. And you're um, you're helping to organize a workshop here at ICML. Tell me a little about, about what you're doing. So this is the third annual workshop on human interpretability. The acronym is Y, and what we try to do is uh, kind of explain why it is that models are producing the the predictions that they are. So interpretation or interpretability or um, explainability, all of these sort of terms are coming from the aspect that uh, when we have really complicated models, they could be deep learning models, they could be really complicated ensemble models and so forth. It's very hard for humans to understand how they actually work. 
And so in the workshop, what we want to be able to do is promote research that lets people understand and that induces trust for the decision makers and, and so forth, as well as permits a lot of safety to, to, be, to be there. It also allows people to actually get some new understanding about a phenomenon. If you're kind of looking at scientific data, maybe now you can um, maybe pose some new hypotheses or kind of have, uh, I mean, some, some understanding that you didn't have before. So there's, I mean, multiple reasons why you would, would like interpretability. Yeah. Well, you'll have to come back and let us know how it goes. It sounds like it'll be yeah. fascinating. It, it should be. And uh, the first two years have been really amazing. Uh, so I'm looking forward to tomorrow as well. And do you have a sister workshop at NIPS or at any of the other conferences? Or is this an ICML only? Uh, so this one, uh, with this group of organizers, we've done it, I mean, at, this, at, at ICML continuously. There are other workshops that have been at NIPS and uh, at other venues as well. Well, Kush, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us. It was really excellent to have you. Great. Uh, it was my pleasure as well. Kush Varshney. Well, that's it for us on this episode of Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode. <laughs>